0: And good, morning. good morning. Be opening your Bibles this morning one last time to Matthew 14. Not one last time open your Bibles, but one last time to Matthew 14. Mark your spot. We're going to get there. But we've looked at these 21 verses through a microscope for several weeks. Bear down on uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 14 looking at Jesus' fame, John the Baptist's fate, and and Herod's folly. Then we looked at uh, the narrative of John the Baptist's murder by Herod, and we looked at that from two angles, a case study and John the Baptist's uh, speaking the truth, and then of Herod's suppressing the truth, he and Herodias. Then we turned to the... Feeding of the 5,000, we got the microscope out again and we bared down hard verse by verse looking at the particulars, emphasizing Jesus' compassion. Then last week we looked at the, verse, uh, the verses differently, or, or at least really at the concepts that are related to the verse differently, getting the, micros- I mean the uh, telescope out for a big picture of biblical theology kind of sermon. We focused in on the themes that are rooted in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New. And these these themes are central to the whole structure and content of the book of Matthew. And they include the conflict between the lineage of King Herod and King Jesus, these conflicting kings. John the Baptist's role in that conflict and the implications for the future of the temple. And this morning we're going to keep our telescope out. We're going to narrow the focus in a bit to show how an understanding of the themes we explored last week is necessary to helping us understand exactly what Matthew's doing in his presentation of these two consecutive uh, narratives of Herod's murderous birthday party and then right on the heels of that giving the feeding of the 5,000. And I believe the purpose of that to be a contrast between the crony King Herod and the Christ the King, Jesus. The contrast between Herod and Jesus. If you, if you do just what I've done for the last several weeks, you, you do a lot of good things, but you actually miss what Matthew's doing. Because Matthew is putting these narratives back to back in order to contrast Herod and his response to John and Jesus and his response to John. He's contrasting exactly what we laid out last week and then I briefly recounted for you again today. The information that Matthew gives prior to Herod's birthday narrative and the feeding of the 5,000 demands that we consider this book-wide contrast between Jesus and the Herodian kings and its relationship to John the Baptist. Look at Matthew 14, 1 through 5. That's before we get to the narrative of John the Baptist's murder by Herod, but it gives you the background. At that time... Herod the Tetrarch heard the news about Jesus. And he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist, who is risen from the dead. And that's why the miraculous powers are at work in him. For when Herod had John arrested... His conscience is eating at him. When Herod had John arrested, he bound him. And he put him in prison because of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip. For John had been saying to him, It's not lawful for you to have her. Although Herod wanted to put him to death, he feared the crowd because they regarded John as a prophet. So verses 1 through 5 introduce these two connected narratives and notice the hinge that connects them. Let's read Matthew 14, 6 through 21. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, "'Give me here on a platter.'" the head of John the Baptist. And although he was grieved, the king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. And he sent and had John beheaded in prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took away the body and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus." Now here's the hinge that it swings on. Now when Jesus heard about John, he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. And when the people heard of this, they followed him on foot from the cities. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and felt compassion for them and healed their sick. When it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This place is desolate and the hour is already late. So send the crowds away so that they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said to them, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. And they said to him, We only have five loaves and two fish. He said, Bring them here to me. And ordering the people to sit down on the grass, he took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food. And breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they picked up what was left over of the broken pieces, twelve full baskets. There were about five thousand men who ate, besides the women and children." Basically, half this section from 6 to 12 is devoted to the narrative of Herod's debaucherous birthday party, right? And then the other half, 13 through 21, is devoted to the feeding of the 5,000 with the news of John the Baptist's death being the hinge that connects the two. It's introduced with the arrest of John the Baptist, and the reason for that arrest... Then the narrative of the birthday party and the murder of John the Baptist is the narrative. Then the hinge that connects the next narrative, which is Jesus responding to that to go to a secluded place and feeding the 5,000s. With the conflict between the crony king and Christ the king being set up by the very structure of Matthew's gospel, it's unsurprising that these two stories perfectly mirror each other point by point. And that's what I'm going to try to do is show you how they mirror each other. In the exact flow with exact opposites every time all the way through eight points of exact mirroring that you see. First of all, look at the setting. What's Herod's setting? Well, verse 6. When Herod's birthday came... Birthday here speaks of a birthday feast, a big party. Roman birthday parties were marked by gluttony, excessive drinking, erotic dancing, and sexual indulgence. It was an awful, godless sort of party. Herod's conscience must be on life support, all but ruined, because he's arrested a man for a crime. Here's the crime. Of warning him to repent of his sin. John didn't do anything wrong. John called him out for doing something wrong and Herod responds by having him arrested. And Herod knew that John was a righteous and holy man. Mark 6.20 tells us that Herod was afraid of John knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and that he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed and he used to enjoy listening to him. He respected John the Baptist. But he's got John the Baptist arrested and in prison, has had him there for a year, But his conscience isn't very pricked about it because he put all of that out of his mind and had a big party. That's what Herod's doing. When When you're only concerned with your own pleasure, you become numb to any hurting or any need around you. Have you ever noticed that? You turn inward on yourself and you don't care about anything. You're numb to everything that happens. Or even any sin within you. You don't care about your own sin anymore because you're on this quest for your own pleasure. And that's all that matters. It's the only thing that can get any attention from you. That's Herod. But Jesus is the exact opposite. Look at how this this settings mirror themselves. In verse 6 you get the setting of the hedonistic party, Herod's hedonistic party. But Jesus is in healing solitude. Look at verse 13. Jesus heard about John and he withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Herod did a big party Jesus is in a secluded place by himself. Jesus hears of John the Baptist's death and his response is to retreat to a secluded place to process everything that happened, to pray and to grieve, far from burying the reality of the brokenness of the world and partying on. While Herod is pursuing empty, endless pleasure, Jesus is concerned with the brokenness in the world in an appropriate and responsible way. When you're doing well, you're numb to everything. I mean, when you're doing poorly, you're numb to everything. When you're doing well, you'll feel the brokenness around you. You'll have a burden, won't you? Jesus was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. He couldn't just turn his eyes to the suffering around him and concentrate on his own hedonistic pleasure. No, that's not the kind of king Jesus was. And it's even set up in this setting... But the contrast doesn't end with their opposite settings. In both narratives, a new character or characters are added to the plot that further demonstrate the character of each king. Well, who are the additional characters added? Well, in Herod's story, it's a seductive temptress. In verse 6, the daughter of Herodias danced before them. At Herod's debaucherous birthday party, self-centered Herod, drunk on pleasure, is confronted with what? With more pleasure. A little girl, and this is how sick it gets, she's between 12 and 14 years old, is provocatively dancing in front of King Herod, in front of his lords, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. It tells us that in Mark 6, 21, the parallel passage. When you put yourself in sinful settings, don't be surprised when wicked things escalate. You go and you think, oh, we're just having some good, clean fun. And the good, clean fun gets a little dirtier. And then the good, clean fun gets a little dirtier still. And you don't care because you're numb to anything that's broken or wrong around you or even the sin within you because you only care about your own pleasure. That's King Herod. That's exactly who he is. But Jesus encounters something different in his secluded place. He doesn't get a seductive tempest. He gets suffering crowds. The people that are interested, that are inserted into his narrative, when the people heard this, they followed Jesus on foot from the cities. In verse 14, when he went ashore, he saw a large crowd. Again, a direct contrast. Jesus is not confronted with something to heighten his pleasure, but of a large crowd that has innumerable needs. And he's alert to those needs. He still feels it. He cares about others because he's not a wicked crony king consumed with his own pleasure. He's a compassionate king who cares about the people that God has entrusted to his care. Herod sees someone who can add to his pleasure. Jesus sees someone who has great needs. And then we see the third contrast in our stories, a contrast of their feelings. Look at 6b also. The daughter of Herod danced before them. And what was Herod's response? It pleased Herod. The word here for pleased is to satisfy, to flatter, or even to excite. The word's often used as an euphemism for sexually aroused. Her glamorous looks and exotic movements pleased Herod to such an extent that he lost all sense of propriety and dignity if he ever had any. And make no mistake, there is pleasure in sin for a season. It has an expiration date though, doesn't it? He, Herod, is pursuing pleasure. He's finding it and that's all he's concerned with and he doesn't care that it has an expiration date. He doesn't care about the warnings of the judgment of God. Crony King Herod is fixated on immediate gratification. This what feels good right now. Have you noticed when you're in this state of mind... You only care about what pleases me right now. Long-term effects, we don't care about that. Lose everything I have. Hinder every relationship I've got. Wreck my marriage. It doesn't matter. I only care about my pleasure that I can get right now. Whether it's a high from drugs or a high from sex or a high from prestige, whatever it is, you care about right now. That's crony King Herod. Far from the righteousness of God. Far from being able to save his people from their sins. But as just the opposite, we see the feelings in the same order, the feelings of King Jesus in verse 14. When, Herod, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd and he felt compassion for them. The pleasure of Herod contrasted with the compassion of Jesus. Just like the debaucherous pleasure of Herod, this word for compassion is also an intense word. But Herod is an intense word about his own pleasure and Jesus is an intense word where he feels deeply the sufferings of others. He cares about how others are, what they're going through. The word describes Jesus' feelings, this compassion. It's untranslated as his heart was moved to pity. But even that misses the full impact of this word. It's more of a visceral kind of thing, an ache, a hurt. It can, it's often even used for labor pains, which two of our ladies can relate to when they listen to this online because they had babies this week. It is not a pleasant thing to give birth, is it? Jesus isn't experiencing pleasure. He's in pain over the suffering that he sees around him. When Herod was intensely moved by his desire for his own pleasure, Jesus was intensely moved by seeing the deep need of the crowds. And both narratives then progress to the actions that resulted from these feelings. Same order, they mirror, they sit right on top of each other because this is what this is what Matthew's doing. The product of those feelings. What do they do? Since Herod wants pleasure and Jesus has compassion, both things produce actions. Well, Herod's actions are in verse 7. So much so, he was pleased so much so, that he gave a thoughtless oath. He promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked for. When we're addicted to pleasure, there's no end to what men will do to obtain it. Addicts of pleasure will lie, they'll cheat, they'll steal... They'll sacrifice relationships with family and with friends. They'll sacrifice the relationship with their own children. They'll go years and not even see their children. They're numb. They don't care about anything. Why? Because they've got to have that next fix. It's all that matters. Here Herod makes a thoughtless oath. Why? To gain more pleasure for himself. Even more pleasure. That's all that matters. For what was Herod negotiating here, you might ask? What did he hope to gain by giving this oath while Salome, this young girl, is dancing before him provocatively? Well, the text doesn't say, but it doesn't take too creative of imagination to figure it out, does it? He's wanting her to do extra things for him, and he'll promise her anything she wants, up to half the kingdom, to get it. And that with his own 14-year-old or 12- to 14-year-old niece. The wickedness just gets worse and worse, doesn't it? In contrast to the thoughtless oath we see as a product of Herod's lust, we see Jesus' compassion produce a thoughtful healing. A thoughtless oath and a thoughtful healing. Jesus healed their sick. Herod Herod was fixated on himself, inwardly focused. Jesus was fixated on others and outwardly focused and experienced this visceral compassion. Remember the word for compassion is related to labor pains, right? I pointed that out. Labor pains don't just happen and go away, they lead to something. The compassionate feelings, the bowels of mercy gave birth to compassionate actions. Jesus loved his neighbor. And he didn't just love him by, oh, I just love you so much. By love, he actually filled the needs that he saw around him. The church should be seeing needs. The people of God should be seeing needs, moved to compassion. And because of that, serving and loving their neighbor. That's fulfillment of the law. Romans 13, 8. Know no no man anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And now both narratives progress to a third party given a command. You get a temptation. Here's Herod's temptation in verse 8. Having been prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. Herodias had been waiting... Have been wanting John the Baptist dead for some time. And she set up this whole episode using her own daughter as a seductress to set the scenario up. Notice how the evil of the temptation progressed. A hedonistic drunken birthday party progressed to an incestuous pedophilia of sorts. And now it's ended in a conspiracy to commit murder. Temptations become more heinous the more you give in. You give in a little and then you give in more. And before long your conscience is seared and you can do absolutely anything. And Jesus, though, has never given in to the first, first temptation, but Herod is given in to a string of them. His tempters are not tempted... Je- Jesus' tempters aren't tempting him with any sort of wickedness. He's never had any propensity to wickedness. But they do tempt him with something. They just tempt him with ease. Herod is tempted with murder. Jesus is tempted with ease. Basically his disciples are the tempters here and they're basically just saying you've done enough. Look at verse 15. Send them away. The disciples came to him and said the place is desolate and the hour is already late. You've been healing these people all day long and we were already tired and we were here to try to grieve over John the Baptist. It's late. Send the crowds away. You've done enough. You ever feel like you've done enough? Aren't you glad Jesus didn't feel like he had done enough when he was tired but had to walk through Golgotha, had to carry the cross on his shoulders, and had to go to Calvary on your behalf? He wasn't too tired to pour himself out for your need. I'm glad we've got a compassionate Savior who doesn't let his I've done enough interfere with him doing what's necessary to love his people. Aren't you? The place is desolate. The hour's already late. So send the crowds away. That they might go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Let them take care of themselves. The Spirit seems to be something like, Come on, Jesus, be reasonable. There's nowhere here for these people to get any food. It's getting late. We've been here all day. We're tired. We haven't had anything to eat all day. And, or even to find what we might eat. The only reasonable thing is to send them on their way. They need to eat. We need some rest and time alone. Herod is tempted to commit murder to get more pleasure. Jesus is tempted to just stop serving to get more rest. The contrast couldn't be more stark, could they? And neither could their response. And the responses are the next thing that comes in both narratives. We have Herod who does the will of men, and we have Jesus who does the will of God. We begin with Herod in the will of man. Verse 9, what does he do when he's tempted to kill John the Baptist to fulfill his oath? Although he was grieved... The king commanded it to be given because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests. Herod gives in to the will of men. Even though Herod was grieved because of the warmth that he had toward John the Baptist, he still had him executed. We will wrong people we even like when we're given over to our own desire and for our own lusts and our own pleasure. Even people we care about. We can care about them and think, well, since I have care and love in my heart, that means deep down I'm really a good person. No, it actually just shows how extremely wicked you really are. That's what it shows. Although he was grieved, he had him executed. Why? To save face. He had given an oath. He cared more about saving faith with his his dinner guests than he did about the very life of the righteous man, John the Baptist, or the judgment of God that he had been warned of. He didn't care about any of that anymore. When we only care about how things affect us, no evil is beyond our capabilities. But Jesus didn't care about the pressure he was getting from his exhausted disciples. He didn't care if they were leaning on him. John the Baptist didn't want to be leaned on or looked down on or thought bad of by men. The fear of man is an enemy of the fear of God. If you've got one, you can't really have the other, can you? If you've got true fear of God, you're not really going to care what any man says or does to you. And if you've got fear of man, you won't care what God does. They're opposites. Jesus, he cared about the will of God. But Jesus, they wanted him to send them away. Verse 16, but Jesus said to them, but, it is the opposite... Herod did the same. Jesus does the opposite. But Jesus said to them, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Instead of obeying the command of the disciples to send them away, Jesus gave a command of his own. Jesus turns their attention away from the hopelessness of the situation and their easy solution of sending the crowds away to get food for themselves. And he invites them to think about how they can help. And all these enormous contrasts lead to a vastly different uh, climax to the story. We get to this climax, these climaxes. That's the next thing that both stories go to. Herod's climax is a wicked woman's vengeance. Look at verse 10. He sent and had John the Baptist beheaded in prison, and his head was brought out on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Although, John knew John, although Herod knew John was righteous and holy, although he used to enjoy listening to him, he would literally sacrifice John the Baptist on the altar of his own pleasure to maintain his reputation and keep good graces with his wife or his so-called wife. What a grotesque display. And unwittingly, he was murder- murdering the forerunner of the promised Messiah, the one that would make straight the path for the promised king who would be able to sit on the throne forever. He was disqualifying himself from being that king 100% and completely and obviously by killing the forerunner of Christ, by killing John the Baptist. And immediately we contrast the climax of the story of... of John the Baptist's death or Herod's murderous dinner party with the climax of the feeding of the 5,000, a needy people's provision in an act of Self-service, Herod heeds Salome's order to give the head of John on a platter, but Jesus gives an order of his own so that he can serve the people. He orders them, verse 19, to sit down in the grass, and he took the five loaves and the two fish, and he looks up to heaven, and he blessed the food, and he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. When you love, man, there's, you can do a lot. God blesses our efforts when we pour out ourselves in love. He absolutely does. Jesus is. Jesus shows us the way. And then we get, lastly, to this last contrast of these two kings, the crony king and Christ the king, and that's the resolution of the story. The useless body of an innocent man, verse 12, his disciples, John's disciples, came and took away the body, the headless body of John the Baptist, and buried it. And they went and reported to Jesus... And what's the resolution of Jesus' story? How does it all resolve after everybody's fed? The useful scraps of life-sustaining miracle are collected. Look at verse 20. They, Jesus' disciples, pick up what was left over, the broken pieces, 12 baskets full. It fed everybody and there was 12 baskets left over. And there were about 5,000 men who ate besides the women and children. At this point, the contrast becomes more intense between Herod, the taker of life, and Jesus, the giver of life. Each from the center of his being, out of who they are. Herod has this impulse toward pleasure and it ends in him killing because he's consumed with his own pleasure. Jesus has this impulse toward compassion and it ends in him feeding the multitudes and giving life out of who they are at their being. While Herod cuts off the head of John the Baptist, Jesus' insides go out to a needy multitude around him. Herod's story begins with a birthday feast and ends with the death of John the Baptist, right? It starts with a birthday feast, ends with the death of John the Baptist. Jesus' story begins with the report of the death of John the Baptist and then ends in a feast. Notice, one, you start feasting and you end in death. The other, you start with death and you end in feasting. One of them is the way of delayed gratification. I'm going to walk the righteous path and it will end in glory. The other is I'm going to grab glory for myself and it will end in death. Does that remind you of anything? That takes you back to the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? I've got to have this fruit and I want it and I want it right now. Well, God says you can. not It doesn't matter. I'll take it. And the whole world is thrust into death. And I believe there's something greater being foreshadowed here something even more miraculous, something more permanent, even eternally life-giving. Herod's dealings with John ended in the useless body of an innocent man being buried. But Jesus' interaction with John still isn't complete. He's dead, but Jesus ain't done. Jesus has to finish what he committed to when he was baptized. Remember, he had to fulfill all righteousness he arrived in Galilee in the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized of you, yet you come to me. And Jesus answered and said, Permit it at this time, for in this way it's permitted, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. And after being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of heaven said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus is committing to perfectly obeying the law as preached by John. And in so doing, he will become the Lamb of God. He would become the one who would fulfill that Zechariah 6 that would build the temple, who would unite the offices. He would perfectly keep the law of God so that he could save his people from their sins and there would be no more need for a temple. Now look back at verse 19 one more time in our text. Verse 19... Points us forward to something that is necessary for this to actually be fulfilled, that will actually lead to the saving of his people from their sins, and a feeding that's much more miraculous than the feeding of the 5,000. Looking up toward heaven, he blessed the food, and breaking the loaves, he gave them to the disciples. Does that sound familiar? That language is used later. Turn to Matthew 26, 26 through 29. While they were eating, Jesus took some bread and after blessing it he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. And he said, take and eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. But I say to you, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine anymore from this day forward until I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. To establish this kingdom of priests and this holy nation, in order to save his people from their sins, he had to perfectly keep the law in this act of giving his life up on the cross becoming the true bread out of heaven and the true drink. Now let's flip forward to see where Jesus' body is broken and his blood is shed. And we're going to see this whole contrast between Herod and Jesus play out again. Look at Matthew 27, 37. Here's the crucifixion narrative. You can almost just guess what's going to come. Matthew 27, 37. When they nailed Jesus to the cross, above his head they put up a charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. There you've got the king. I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing it mentions is the temple. Look at verse 27, 39 through 40. And those who were passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself." If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. And then there's going to be a temptation to save himself so he can save face. In verse 27 through 41 through 42, Herod killed John the Baptist to save face. Maybe Jesus will save himself to save face. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others, himself he cannot save. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we'll believe him. I wouldn't be surprised if the next thing it mentions in this text is John the Baptist. Look at 27:45 through 49. Now, from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani," which is My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour vinegar and put it on a reed and they gave him a drink. But the rest said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. No. Elijah's the one that he baptized him. It was the Elijah who was to come that pointed him to the necessary death on the cross that would have to happen as the ultimate act of compassion to save his people from their sins. Look at the next thing he has in this keeping of the law. Verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and he yielded up his spirit. Jesus' love fulfilled the law. His compassion had no end. He, what is the great commandment of the law? To love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. That Jesus in his love of neighbor gave up his life, fulfilling the law perfectly that he had been immersed in. John the Baptist's perfect teaching and preaching of compassion. Jesus walked those straight paths all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus made himself the king, not Herod, the true king, the promised Messiah through the death on the cross by fulfilling everything. And what's the outcome? Look at verse 51. And behold... The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil was torn. You had access to God now. There's no more need for a temple. And just a few years later, about 40 years later, we're going to have the temple completely demolished and thrown into the sea because the true king is seated at the right hand of the throne of God making intercession for you as the promised priest king right now. That's what you've got in King Jesus. He's everything in his compassion that that Herod wasn't. In his debaucherous quest for pleasure. At the end of Herod's story, the useless body of a relatively innocent man was buried. At the end of Jesus' story, the infinitely useful body of an absolutely innocent man was buried, but only temporarily. Jesus didn't stay in that ground. Jesus came forth. Joseph took the body, Joseph of Arimathea, and he buried it. But three days later, that true temple came back just like he said it would in Matthew 27, verses 39 through 40. He raised that temple up again, and now he is the chief cornerstone that we are placed in as the true temple of God. The stone which the builders rejected, became the chief corner. And this was the work of the Lord, and it is marvelous in our sight, is it not? And now, as the resurrected, exalted Savior, that's where we get the Great Commission. Look at Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The resurrected Jesus appears to his disciples after fulfilling the law and raising from the dead, And he tells them all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth. What authority does Herod have? None. Not only that, but we can go higher than Herod. We can go to Pilate and we can go to Caesar and we can go to any human king. No, no. Jesus is king of kings, lord of lords. Why? Because he perfectly fulfilled the law and established an eternal kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And we're here 2,000 years later. Worshipping King Jesus, who is going forth conquering and to conquer, not with a sword, but with a message of his love lived out through his people. And we cannot lose. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore. Here's the charge to, you, to us. Make disciples of all the nations. He's got authority over all of them. Make disciples of all of them. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching all the nations. Well, that's colonizing. Yep, sure is. In the name of Jesus, it sure is. Yeah, that sounds like Christian nationalism. Yep. Nations that are governed over by the principles of Jesus Christ, which will bring human flourishing. It's the most loving thing we can do. Yep. Make disciples of the nations. Herod's abolished. He's under the feet of King Jesus. And we go with all the authority of heaven. And we disciple everybody. And we can't lose. We've forgotten that message. We're waiting to be plowed over. When the Bible tells me that we're the plow... And he that puts his hands to the plow and looks back isn't even fit for the kingdom of heaven. Keep plowing, guys. You can't lose. You have the Holy Spirit of the living God living within you and all the authority of heaven behind you. King Jesus has established a kingdom and it will spread. It will grow like mustard seed. The birds of the air will rest in its branches and hide in its shade. It will spread like leaven through a whole lump until the whole lump of dough is leavened. Maximum impact over the whole world. Jesus did that because he was everything Herod wasn't and everything no other king before or after has been. Worship this resurrected king and be used by him in the building of his kingdom. Kind and gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for this contrast you lay out for us. I pray that we will be emboldened by it, that we will be uh, comforted by the fact that we're forgiven of our sins, but also that we'll be emboldened by the fact that the Holy Spirit of the living God lives within us and greater things than he did, we will do, because he sent the Holy Spirit to us. Lord, use us to expand your kingdom for your name's sake, honor and glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.